Welcome to Understand Murdoch, a podcast from The Post and Courier, South Carolina's largest newspaper. Our award-winning reporters have spent more than a year digging into the Murdoch saga to bring you the latest news and in-depth analysis as we covered the story of drugs, deceit, and death in South Carolina's rural low country. And now we're here to provide quick daily updates on Alec Murdoch's highly anticipated double murder trial in Colleton County. There we go. Hello, and welcome to Understand Murdoch. My name is Nathan, one of your two hosts. I'm alongside Jocelyn. And Jocelyn, today was a big day for two different reasons. Jurors got to visit Moselle, which is the Murdoch's massive hunting property and the site of the killings. And then we also got into closing arguments. Yeah, the morning was a bit of a waiting game for us since not all media was allowed on the trip to Moselle, but luckily we got some helpful updates from the pool reporter. But we went right into the state's closing argument when the jurors got back, which probably lasted around three hours. You mentioned a pool reporter. Can you explain what that means? Sure. So Judge Clifton Newman didn't allow anyone but the lawyers from both sides, court personnel and law enforcement officers, to go with jurors on the visit. But he decided one print reporter, one photographer and a videographer could visit Moselle once jurors left. And they were instructed to share their observations and photos and video with all media. And this is known as pool reporting. Okay, I got it. So who is chosen as the pool reporter? That would be Valerie Bowerlane. She's a journalist with the Wall Street Journal, and she also happens to be writing a book about the Murdoch family and this whole saga. And she did a really fantastic job sharing her observations with us. The 12 jurors and two alternates were loaded into three vans after they got to the courthouse at 9 a.m. The windows were blocked to keep anyone from looking in. Judge Newman rode behind the caravan in a pickup truck driven by Colleton County Sheriff's officers. He was wearing street clothes. After about a half hour drive, the jurors arrived at the kennel entrance. They had a total of 30 minutes to view the property. They spent the bulk of their time at the kennels and shed where Maggie and Paul were killed. At the end, they rode for about two minutes up to the main residence to see its exterior. No one was allowed to go inside. The jurors preceded the pool reporter and photographer by several minutes. They saw jurors walking the narrow path between the kennels and the shed about 12 steps, according to the photographer's count. One juror was standing in the feed room door, glancing up at the doorway that's been the subject of so much gut-wrenching testimony. This is the spot where prosecutors say Alec fired the fatal gunshot blast that caused Paul's head to explode. Grass throughout the property is tall, and the shrubs outside the caretaker's cabin are bushy and overgrown. The black mailbox at the entrance to the kennels is covered in pollen and spiderwebs. There's a no trespassing sign tied to a post at the top of the mailbox. A dirt road links the kennels to the main house. It's lined on both sides by pine trees. Barely young fruit trees are supported by the same type of piping jurors saw in a Snapchat video Paul filmed of Alec the day of the killings. The main house doesn't come into view from the dirt path until it connects with the main driveway, which is lined by stately trees. It's very quiet throughout the property, save for birds. No traffic noises can be heard. The off-white house has a silver tin roof and wide porch lining its entire front. There were no visible vehicles, only a green bicycle with a deteriorating wicker basket parked to the side of the steps. Alec and other witnesses testified that Maggie would commonly ride a bike to the kennels when she checked on the dogs. 
There were planters on both sides of the doors, as well as what appeared to be a small dog bed on decorative wicker frames. On a table tucked between two darkly painted rocking chairs was a small pot painted with the name Buster. Wow, those are some great observations. It, it seems like quite an eerie scene. Yeah, I was actually talking about that with one of our photographers, Andrew Whitaker. He was selected to be the pool photographer. The property has essentially been shuttered since June 2021, and this is the first time anyone from the media has seen it, at least to my knowledge. Andrew told me the Kennel area in particular felt really unsettling. Yeah, and shout out to Andy for all the work he's done on this. He's been great. Yeah. Um, but going on, let's break down what happened in the courtroom after jurors got back from the field trip. Sure. So Creighton Waters, the lead prosecutor in this case, delivered the state's closing argument. I mentioned this before, but it lasted about three hours total after you factor in a long break for lunch and then a shorter break in the afternoon. Can you outline his argument for us? Yeah. So Waters began by telling jurors Ellick is the person who brutally murdered his wife and son at Moselle on June 7th, 2021. An exhaustive investigation by state agents revealed that he was the only person with the motive, means, and opportunity to carry out these crimes, according to Waters. And the prosecutor sort of broke down his argument by walking jurors through each of these categories, motive, means, and opportunity. All right, let's start with motive. What was Waters' theory? As we've heard all trial, prosecutors have said Ellick's alleged decade-long spree of theft and deceit had gone undiscovered until the 2019 boat crash, in which Paul was criminally charged and Alec, Maggie, and Buster were each named as defendants in a related civil suit. This boat crash changed everything, according to Waters. He said the pace and boldness of Alec's stealing increased until spring of 2021. This is when Alec had won a case he worked with another attorney, Chris Wilson, right? That's right. And prosecutors say Alec convinced Wilson to deposit his fees earned in the case, nearly $800,000, directly into his bank account instead of paying it to the law firm. Which is against the firm's rules and akin to stealing from it. Is that right? Exactly. And this money lasted Alec only two months before prosecutors say he ran out again. And around this time, his colleagues at the firm began asking questions as they realized the fees were missing. And then that civil case stemming from the boat crash also continued to loom. Right. We heard testimony from Mark Tinsley that he was trying to get a personal recovery from Alec of $10 million, and that he'd ask a judge to force Alec to hand over his financial records. Yeah, and Tinsley testified if Alec had given over those records, he would have uncovered all his theft and stolen money. A hearing on the matter was scheduled for June 10th, 2021, just three days after the killings. And we've also heard testimony that on June 7th, the day of the killings, Alec was filling out paperwork related to the civil suit when an employee at his law firm confronted him about the missing fees. And didn't Alec learn the same day that his father, Randolph, was really sick? That's right. He was being taken to the hospital, and he'd end up dying three days later. Waters painted Randolph as a powerful attorney whom Alec idolized and often went to when he needed money. And all of this mounting pressure caused Alec to murder Maggie and Paul, according to Waters. But what did the killing accomplish, at least according to prosecutors? 
Well, as Waters pointed out, everything changed after June 7th. All that stuff that was coming to a head immediately went away for Ellick. His colleagues stopped questioning him about the missing legal fees. Tinsley testified a jury would no longer find Ellick responsible in the civil lawsuit, so he was off the hook for that $10 million payout. And the financial hearing was also indefinitely rescheduled. Well, Ellick has since been charged with nearly 100 financial crimes. What ultimately exposed him? Great question. That would be the roadside shooting, according to Waters. Ellick's law partners discovered his alleged thefts and confronted him about it in September 2021. He was immediately forced to resign. The next day, September 4th, Ellick admitted he'd asked an associate to fatally shoot him so his remaining son, Buster, could collect on Ellick's life insurance policy. But Ellick didn't actually die, and so prosecutors say he crafted an elaborate lie about being shot on the side of the road by an unknown assailant to garner sympathy. Investigators pretty quickly discovered the truth. And Waters repeated a powerful phrase during his argument. When accountability is at Ellick's doorstep, he tends to become a victim. Okay, that sums up his alleged motive. What about the means? Right. So Waters spoke about the two weapons used in the killings, a 300 blackout rifle and a 12-gauge shotgun. Prosecutors say both were family-owned. The Murdochs at one point had three of those rifles. The first one belonged to Buster and the second to Paul, but his was lost in 2017. Paul got a replacement rifle, and this is the gun prosecutors say killed Maggie, and it's never been recovered. They found Buster's rifle inside the main house, right? That's right. And Paul was killed with the shotgun, which also remains missing. The Murdochs owned three Benelli Super Black Eagle shotguns, each one a different series. Paul favored the Series 3. Investigators recovered this one, which Ellick said he'd grabbed the night of the killings for protection after discovering the bodies. Buster had the Series 2, which investigators found inside the main house. But the Series 1, which one witness testified belonged to Ellick, is nowhere to be found. I know we've heard a lot about digital forensic evidence. How did Waters address this? He presented jurors with a PowerPoint outlining the family's movements the night of the killings, based on car and cell phone data. Waters focused on the video that was filmed on Paul's phone at 8.44 p.m., which he said places Ellick at the crime scene minutes before his wife and son were killed. But it also exposed Ellick's apparent lies about the last time he had seen his wife and son alive. Ellick didn't publicly admit to being in that video or down at the kennels that night until he got on the stand to testify last week. Waters said this video is the one thing Ellick didn't expect, as investigators didn't find it until April of 2022. Waters repeatedly emphasized how Ellick, as a respected trial attorney and part-time prosecutor, knows how criminal investigations work. Alec knows what it takes to build a believable defense and was thinking about that as he carefully planned out the killings, according to Waters. Prosecutors have spoken at length throughout the trial about Alec's alleged lies before, during and after the slayings. Did Waters address this in his argument? He did. Waters told jurors people lie because they know they've done something wrong. He discussed Ellick's explanation for why he had lied to investigators and those he loved about being at the kennels that night. Ellick had told jurors his paranoia and distrust of the state investigators caused him to lie, but 
Waters pointed out that this statement is coming from the same man who enjoyed an extremely cozy relationship with the local law enforcement community. Yeah, he had blue lights installed in his personal car at one point. Right, and Waters accused Alec of lying about his new alibi, too. What do you mean? Well, Waters walked jurors through everything they'd have to believe about the new story. That Alec had been at the kennels, but jetted back to the house, took the shortest nap in the history of the South, as Waters called it, and left the property mere seconds before a pair of five-foot-two vigilantes killed Maggie and Paul. These supposed vigilantes would have to know both of them were alone at the kennels. They'd have to know the spacious property very well, and they'd have to assume they were going to find weapons and ammunition down there, according to Waters. And they apparently didn't present any threat to Paul or Maggie as either of them had defensive wounds. Waters closed his argument by explaining all of this, and then reminding jurors Alec had fooled everyone who thought they were close to him, including Maggie and Paul. Waters said that they had paid for it with their lives. And then he told jurors not to let Alec fool them, too. Wow. Um, Did defense attorneys have the chance to give their closing argument? No. Judge Newman decided to dismiss jurors for the day. It was already 5 p.m., so they'll come back tomorrow morning at 9.30, and Jim Griffin is expected to deliver the defense's argument. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. Thanks, Nathan. For more in-depth coverage of this trial, as well as the latest news on the Murdoch story at large, stay tuned to postandcourier.com slash Murdoch. You can find us on Twitter at Post and Courier.